Welcome everyone. Uh, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. I'm here with uh, Taylor Westcote, uh, EIR at SeedCamp, as well as our guest uh, Mark Zorns from Winnow Solutions. And uh, Mark's story is an interesting one uh, because A, as I mentioned earlier, it's a SeedCamp company, but it's a non-traditional SeedCamp company in the sense that it's tackling an issue that most of you probably don't even know exists, which is food wastage and the impact that that has on the environment as well as the economics of, of the food industry. But I'll let Mark kind of go into in greater depth there in a bit. Um, but let's take a first a step back as we like to do and learn a little bit more about the person behind the company. Mark, what, when, when you graduated from undergrad, where, where were you and, and what did you study and what was the first thing that you did? Sure, so I graduated from Washington University studying computer science uh, and business when I was there. Um, when I was at WashU, uh, I actually ran a company that was a laundry startup uh, back in the day and was thinking about scaling that, but had advice from a couple of mentors to join a large company that was growing quickly. So I joined the U.S.'s largest food wholesaler of all places because they grew from 500 million in turnover to 20 billion in a period of 15 years. Um, learned a whole lot while I was there, both about what it's like to be with a large company growing and also how large organizations work. Uh, then, um, through a couple of other steps, ended up at McKinsey & Company, uh, working in their food practice, uh, looking at operations and strategy, as well as looking at sustainability, which is what led me to Winnow. Okay, but what, what was it that spawned that idea behind Winnow? Because, I mean, clearly now that you've given us a little bit of your background, you're exposed to that industry, yeah. but maybe what's not obvious to people is what wastage means. Well, what's that mean in terms of ordering? What's that term in terms of manufacturing? What's the global impact of, of this? Yeah, so it's, it's a very good question, Carlos. Um, what became really clear uh, through some research that I was doing with the McKinsey Global Institute was we were looking at large opportunities and what I like to call resource efficiency. And that can mean everything from, uh, you know, energy efficiency in buildings to electric cars to anything that allows us to use our natural resources in a more efficient way. And when we ran some numbers on what the global opportunities were, food waste uh, was highlighted actually as the second or third biggest opportunity in the world. Second really only to energy efficiency in buildings. And yet what was surprising was that there was hardly anyone doing anything about it. And so I started to do some work within McKinsey to start to look at what could be done from a corporate level, but really just out of frustration that there really wasn't much happening. Uh, decided to leave McKinsey to found Winnow. Um, and th this issue of food waste is important because you know, when you look at the facts, a third of all food that is grown never gets eaten. And we're not talking about bones or things that couldn't, you know, otherwise just a sort of organic. We're just talking about actual food that could have been prevented. And in countries like the UK, there's really three areas that really matter from a percentage and from a volume perspective. That's either at the farm, that's either in hospitality, meaning where you eat out of home, or at your home yourself. And the reason we focus and what Winnow does is to work with companies in hospitality to help them minimize food waste is that we find that on average about 15 to 20 percent of the food that most restaurants hotels or counter catering sites actually purchase ends up getting thrown away in their operation and we give them tools to help them prevent that which ultimately has a huge impact on their bottom line yeah but let's um let's kind of tackle a couple of the naysayers perhaps who might be listening to this um if you were to make the value chain more efficient does that necessarily materially mean an impact to the food that is not being wasted to being redistributed in parts of the world where there is no food available as you know, in the way that it is available in, in, in the sort of developed world? Does that necessarily imply that unlocking this equals 
more available elsewhere? Or is it really just about reducing production in a specific geography? Or is it even possible to do that? I'm just trying to get a quantum of, of the mm. economics here. I mean, I guess if you look at the economics, anywhere that you're going to reduce demand is going to have a knock-on effect elsewhere within the supply chain. To put the exact numbers on it and say if we prevent a pound or a kilo of food waste here, what does that actually mean elsewhere is, is, a, is, 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 is a tough question. I mean, what we're ultimately focused on is not just where there's a environmental benefit because clearly, you know, regardless of the redistribution redistribution of that food, if you prevent a kilo of chicken or a kilo of fish being thrown away in one site, you're preventing something that should not have been wasted from actually going into the garbage and that's a win as it is. Um, but it's also just about the economic case. I mean, that's really partially why I'm interested in it as well is that most environmentally focused businesses that only have the environmental case or don't have a strong economic case, they're going to have a real difficult time scaling. And while that would be, I would have a heart for that, yeah. that's not something that I'd like to dedicate my life in solving. What I'm interested in is something that has phenomenal economic returns and has the right thing for the environment at the same time. And then you see the environmental benefits as effectively a tailwind for your business. And that's how we look at things. Yeah. And so because of the nature of the product, um, I didn't mention this earlier, but Winnow is effectively a hardware company. Yeah. And the way, I remember when I first heard about what you're trying to do, it, it seemed a little bit like black magic in terms of trying to determine where things are being wasted and how that's being tracked. Maybe this is a chance for you to like pitch a little bit to those who are listening, kind of what it is that you actually do in terms of tracking and reducing uh, food wastage. Sure. So, you know, our mission is to connect the commercial kitchen. Um, when you look at how large-scale kitchens operate, they often operate on pen and paper, and we put connected devices into kitchens to monitor production, monitor waste that gets generated, and then feed that analytic back into the chef to allow them to run a kitchen in a more efficient way. Um, in simple form, we put scales around where they're throwing food away, we do analytics on what's being wasted at what given time, put a cost to that, and then help the chef make better production planning decisions. It's interesting that you describe us as a hardware company. I do think we are that, but what I'm actually changing and sort of thinking about a bit more is we're, we're more of a hardware-enabled company and that what we're not really selling is the product itself. What we're selling is a service. What we're selling is a software and analytic tool that sites need on an ongoing basis to be able to drive change. Yes, you need a piece of hardware. You need an Internet of Things device in the kitchen to be able to make that happen, um, but that's not the end goal of what we're trying to deliver. When you looked at building the, the product and there was this as you put it, like a hardware-enabled uh, startup, um, you kind of uh, had this prototype that you, you, I remember seeing it and it was kind of a, a funny, funny looking thing, but it, it worked. And, yeah. and maybe you can walk um, the audience through the sort of the three challenges that you wish you had known uh, before you embarked on that journey. And then maybe you can uh, bring everybody up to speed as to kind of where you are in terms of production, just to give everybody a feel for that. For anybody who is thinking about creating a startup, but it's also a sort of a hardware-enabled service, in effect. Yeah. So I think one, um, one key tenet that we've really taken hold, and this has been through conversations that we've had with people like Matt Webb, um, who has done a lot of work great with Burke, is thinking about modularity when you're looking at hardware and designing your hardware in such a way where you become as independent from building something on your own and having as few sort of dependent parts on each other. So that allows you to be able to upgrade different parts of your solution without really having to completely redesign your product at all. Mm -hmm. And so taking a step back for ourselves, what we really have is we have a 
um, a tablet that communicates and takes in information. We have a scale um, that allows us to weigh and, and, and gather information on there. And then we have a what we call our Woo box or our black box that allows us to communicate between those two. And some of that's available on the market, but we built our own bespoke because it, it has different specifications for that. Keeping those elements modular have allowed us to look outside and say, actually, there's a vast majority of this product that we do not want to be manufacturing. Right? There's a vast majority of this that we can, can never get to the scale that existing players are going to have, and we're just going to buy on the market. Maybe in the long run we'll look to go source that from China at a low cost, but at this point in time we're really just buyers in that. And then focusing in on what is it in that product that we actually have to become experts in, designing that. Designing that locally at this point in time and manufacturing that locally because that allows us to iterate in a lean way. So by that what I mean is that we go out and we we have a product that's made just outside the M25. We order it in batches of 50 to 100. When we need to make an upgrade, we can do that on a fairly quick basis. And it allows us to really turn as much as we can. That's the first piece around modularity and around having what you need to do core well in that hardware. Do that locally, do that closely. Because right now, going for cost and economies of scale is not the key that you're trying to drive. You're trying to drive top line with that. Can I ask a question, Mark? Can you talk to us a little bit about um as you're going through your journey, some of the opportunities you had to engage with your customers directly and, and, and what you took away from their feedback that helped you develop the business further? It's a good, it's a really good question. I mean, we, reaching out and spending time with our customers is, I think, one of the most valuable things that we do. Um, we spend a lot of time with chefs, helping them both use our system, but also to interpret the results. Now, as a business, we want to minimize that sort of interpretation and productize that as much as possible. But early on, it's fantastic research and development. Um, I mean, I think one of the biggest things that we learned was to keep it simple and to keep it fast in terms of how our system works because these are busy places. Okay. You're going to be asking people who have a lot of tasks to be able to engage with you and you have to both capture data in an efficient way but also play back to them in a way that they can digest and move on from that. Are there any particularly entertaining stories that you that you could share with the audience that uh, you went through in that experience? I, I think one thing that I'd like to add to, to your question, Taylor, is the fact that your customer isn't as obvious. It's not like a typical B2C company where you have like just mm -hmm. the chef. Yeah, you have sure. like so many other components. You have the company that is employing the chef who's probably making a lot of the technological decisions, but the chef is ultimately the user. So as, as sort of you, you, you address Taylor's question, it's like painting that view because many other people will probably be selling to companies like yours and the reason why you can do these small batches to some extent is because it is this slow sales cycle type business as well. It's not like you're selling you know, a Pebble watch where you have to manufacture this, spool it up really fast and then deliver millions of units. So maybe, maybe that would be an interesting thing here as well. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, when we think about our customer and, and our users, um, we draw out an entire decision making unit in that we have the chef who is the ultimate customer and that's the person that we have to make successful because if 
he or she's successful, then we're successful in that. But the buyer is going to be the financial director of the organization or the manager of the organization. And then other users are going to be pretty much anyone else that's in the kitchen engaging with our system in one way or another. Um, I mean, we've had to learn quite quickly that when you're giving feedback to people that are holding knives while you're talking to them, you have to be fairly graceful in kind of how you do that. Um, and I think, you know, what we've, what we've really learned is not necessarily going in and trying to dictate or show a chef how to do something differently but more giving them the information to unlock that creativity themselves. And, and that's something that I think has been key to our success. Um, rather than going to a chef and saying, you should be producing this way, which can be counterproductive. And of course, you're never going to get it exactly right. Instead saying, here's what the information tells you. Here is why we've seen overproduction in these areas. And here are the kind of things you want to think about to do differently. Then there's an incredible amount of creativity in that craft that you can unlock that helps them drive change. Great. But how did you manage those conversations with the non-chefs, the, the other parts of the DMU? Like, how long has, how long has that been uh, a challenge in terms of, um, of talking uh, with them to get buy-in after you've already gotten buy-in from the chef? How, how, how does that affect your product development? Because in some cases, the chef might be bought in within 30 minutes of speaking with you, but then the buying guy is, is maybe delaying it on a procurement cycle or something else. Maybe you can walk through a little bit of that. Yeah, um, I, I think from a, from a product perspective, what we have to be sure is to understand that there needs to be elements of our products and benefits of our products, features and benefits of our product that will appeal to those buyers as well. So that's around benchmarking, that's around looking at performance and around understanding the financials from that. The other benefits that a lot of our clients get is actually new business that while this is a product that's going to make their business more efficient, if they're going in to new clients and those clients are asking them, what are you doing from an innovation? What are you doing from a sustainability? We're one of the more interesting things in town to be able to do that. And we've actually had clients that have won significant amounts of business off the back of putting us into their bids. Um, one of the things that we've done to speed up the business development cycle is part of what we have to gather with these large organizations. And we're dealing with companies that often are doing tens of millions to hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars in turnover is to help them understand that our system drives value at scale in their business. And so while a lot of clients will come in and say, can I trial the product? What can I do about it? We change the table and we say, look, we'll guarantee benefits of our system. You give us 10 pilot sites. We'll prove to you that this thing works at material scale. And what that does is, first of all, helps them understand the confidence that we have in our products. The second thing is that it totally skips the process where you try it once and then you expand. You're starting on the forefront of actually demonstrating, look, this works at a number of your sites. Now let's talk about a broad rollout, which is where we are with many of our clients. That's very useful advice, actually. And um, probably for other founders who might be in that same situation, it's probably quite actionable way of approaching the, the go-to-market. Yeah. Um, what, other, what other sort of lessons learned would you, would you say anybody who might be listening is considering entering a, a similar space where it's arguably more of a B2B hardware services company um, and, and that they may not be thinking of. Yeah. I mean, um, some of it is actually taking learnings from B2C and how you think about this, right? Because when I go to a lot of these businesses 
there's a very clear economic case and there's a very rational case to it, but recognizing that the decisions that people are going to make to adopt your product are not always going to be off the five features that you lay down in the ROI that's very clear. They're going to have other priorities. They're going to have emotional decisions that they make. And making sure that you are both sharing that back to them and making sure that they see what they want and reflected in there. But also uh, to make sure that your system has an element of, of aspiration and desire that's, that they can get into. So, so, so that, would be, that would be one lesson that I've learned. I suppose you know, a second lesson that I've learned is that you know, always with large businesses when you're doing these sales, being relentless on the business development process and asking yourself and drawing out that business development cycle and saying, how can I shortcut it every single way? Because one of the harder things about B2B is the fact that these decisions will sometimes be made at specific points in time, that you have to have groups making decisions and finding ways to shortcut or shrink that process in any way is simply going to be a vector for growth for yourself. And so drawing that out on a board, saying what are the five things we can do, what would that mean from drawing our cycle time down from six months to three months, and then there's the next step that we're going to eliminate entirely. You know, that's what's really gotten us from a place where I would say a few months ago we were doing five to ten thousand in sales a month and now we're doing sixty. You know, that's been the that's been the really thing that started to unlock that. That's fantastic to hear. Can I um, is there since a lot of companies face this similar B2B challenge mm. in the diverse decision-making groups involved in the sales cycle. Are there any um, key examples that you could pull out where you guys said, well, let's try this strategy and, and, and what return it had in, in the sales cycle or the decision process for your customers? I mean, rather than a sort of specific example, what, what we like to do and what we're doing a better and better now is to really understand all the different people that are going to be involved in that decision and making sure that you're out in front of all of those people and actually systematically going through that list and making sure that you have those ticked off. You may think in your head, and there's been times where I've thought in my head, yeah, I've got these five people lined up, they should be good. But when you actually draw out who all the people are that could be involved in the decision, you're going to find holes. Right? And then the second thing from that is making sure that you're aligning what you're doing to their strategy. Because in business business development, if you're doing large corporate sales like we are, you've probably got 20 to 30 large deals in the pipeline at every single time. So this whole A-B process of iterating, that's, you know, that's, that, that's a little bit more difficult to credibly action with a with, with, with large amount of data. But what you can do is make sure that you do deep research on each of your clients, understand what their priorities are, understand how your product actually helps them meet those priorities, and change the conversation rather than from what you want them to hear, from what they want to hear. Mm. And that's a really key way to help move things forward. Mm. That's good, good feedback. If we move a little bit away from, let's say, product and, and go to market and, and go back to what we started off with, which is around the the dual purpose of your company one which is an altruistic uh, eco-friendly type solution another one being as you said a sort of economical uh, argument towards um, reducing uh, food wastage how has that affected your hiring has has the people who have joined you joined you uh, 
partially because they're also involved and, and really believe in the cause that it's enabling? Or frankly, is there more a case here for the company standing on an economic two, two feet? And then as a consequence, people become passionate about the idea itself. How has that affected the ease of hiring or the kinds of applicants you've had versus just, a, you know, if, if it weren't this, this sort of dual purpose? I mean, so we... We're fortunate in being um, a, a, an enterprise with a, with a social mission that our number one social impact metric is how much food waste are we preventing at our client sites? And we put that on a monetary value. Right now our clients are saving 1.8 million pounds a year in food costs. Mm-hmm. Our number one economic success factor is how much money are our clients saving in food costs? And so that's very clearly aligned. And so I would say both that you have to both be standing on the environmental foot as well as the economic foot. It's the economic footing that's going to propel us to global scale. But when hiring people, when bringing people in, I want people to share that passion. Because if they're not sharing that passion, then there's lots of other things they could be doing. Now, we have a very high bar of people that we bring into the company. And I think one of the benefits of doing what we do is that whenever we put an offer out there, we get a huge number of applicants. Um, because there are people that want to really get involved in what we're doing. It's a nice place to be in a world where you wake up and get out of bed and say, I'm building a globally scalable technology company, but I'm also building a company that's going to make the world a significantly better place in an issue that I care about. Um, so we filter for, it's a mandate that you have to, that you have to care mm-hmm. about what we're doing. You have to be wanting to get out of bed to do this, but that's not sufficient. Right. What is sufficient and what's what's necessary is actually going to be being excellent at what you do, having something distinctive that you can bring to the company, whether it be in product development, whether it be in marketing, whether it be in sales or whether it be in operations. Because in truth, we're in the early adopter phase of what we're doing in our market. We're actually building this market right now. And the companies that are going to buy into what we're doing are going to buy into it from an economic case. But they're going to take the step early if they care about this from the reason why we're doing it as well. And so when they meet everyone in an organization and they're both impressed with the caliber of themselves but also with the passion that we have to solve the problem, that's when we form lasting partnerships with companies that really want to move quickly with us. Cool. Yeah, it makes sense. So we always like to wrap things up with an opportunity for you to shamelessly plug something. And, um, you know, we've heard some great uh, discussion around the issue associated with, with world hunger and, and, and food wastage. But maybe, I don't know if you have any meetups or causes or charities that you, you think would be of value for people to go check out. Yeah, so, um, and it's going to be on the same topic as you might imagine as someone who really cares about this issue. There's a wonderful organization called Feedback run by Tristram Stewart, uh, who uh, runs a program called Feeding the 5,000, um, which is really an awareness campaign. Um, check them out. They're a great organization. They do everything from gleaning at farms to helping to redistribute food to people who need it that would have otherwise been wasted. A completely different approach on this problem, but one that is helping raise awareness within Europe and the world more broadly, and I also think doing some fantastic work at the same time. Cool. Thanks for that, Mark, and thanks for that, Taylor, and until next time, guys. Bye.